we knew that we were both kind of in the intersection of developer and enterprise. And we we're asking ourselves, what's still hard to do? And we went back and looked at, you know, all the different things. And access control was immediately something that we noticed. Well, you know, there's an API for that for everything except for access control, right? And why is that true? You know, like, let's go back to, you know, our work at Microsoft and try to figure out why that's true and why that could be something that we could go after. Access control is in the critical path of every application request. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Omri Gazit, CEO and co-founder of Asserto an opinionated framework that provides everything necessary to build enterprise-ready, role-based access control. The two begin with a dive into Omri's early beginnings in enterprise software, including his time at Microsoft working on the .NET framework. This sparks a discussion into the challenges of building interoperable software and how the software buying motion changed during the 1990s. The conversation shifts to Omri's time running the XML team at Microsoft and the lessons learned that would lead to the creation of Azure, including building the team and bridging the world of enterprise for what would inevitably become known as the cloud. The pair then cover a multitude of topics, including a multi-vendor versus single-vendor approach to open-source ecosystems, and how managing complexity for heterogeneous enterprise environments is key. Finally, Omri discusses what led him to found Asserto as enterprise-grade access control was something that large organizations still clearly struggled with. All that and much, much more in this new episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast. Many thanks to Omri for his time, and we hope you enjoy. All right, Omri, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Well, let's dive right in. Tell us a bit about you know, how you got into enterprise software and you know, how you've been building things. Yeah, the enterprise. Let's see. Uh, yeah, this goes back a little over thirty years, so I may be a little bit older than uh, some of your typical guests. But right out of college, I was going to go back to Israel. Um, that's where I'm from. That's where I grew up. And I think I was about twenty years old, and I was going to do a summer um, working for basically whoever paid me the most money. And at the time, I was I did my college in Houston. That was Texaco. Texco had an information technology department. So I got, I think it was like $13 an hour, which was like the most that they would offer anybody for a summer job, which was great uh, because I wanted to save a little bit of money uh, before going back. And so, you know, as a kind of basically an intern, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And they sold me on all this development that I was going to do. Anyway, I joined this place and they have like all these mainframes. And I'm like, okay, what do you want me to do? They have like these logs that they want me to transfer. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go right in and see. They're like, see, yeah, we don't have that on the mainframe. 
I'm like, what do you have? I was like, they have, we have COBOL, we have PL1, we have, well, if you're a really crack programmer, you know, BAL, basic assembler. And I'm like, uh, how about C? So I went off on this, like, you know, kind of like a scavenger hunt and I found a C compiler on their, you know, system, uh, 370 or whatever. And I, so I started building this thing and I just recall, I mean, it was just such a, such a shock because they didn't think I would get it done. They thought it would take the whole summer. It took me three days. And, hmm. uh, and I, I was like, now what? They're like, okay, now you have to rewrite it in PL1. <laughs> <I'm> like, what? <laughs> it works. And they're like, yeah, but we don't know how to maintain it. No one, no one here knows C. Nor will they ever learn it. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. It was a funny introduction because on the one hand, I'm like, this is completely night and day. Like what I learned in college kind of has you know, very little bearing in terms of like what the quote state of the art is for enterprises at the time. It was kind of an interesting lesson, you know, that kind of follows throughout my career. Sometimes it's easy to forget that, you know, when we live on kind of like the bleeding edge of technology, larger companies take a longer, much longer time, time horizon to adopt those technologies. So I was like wrong point in time, but I was right directionally. Because five or 10 years later, of course, all the stuff that we were doing, you know, Unix systems at the time and, you know, the PC revolution and all that stuff was going to, you know, go disrupt, you know, how, how those folks did business. So mm. inside of the cocoon, you know, like they had no idea like that all this stuff was about to come, you know, so I could see it. But at the same time, I realized that I had to be a lot more patient in terms of how I thought about the time horizons for enterprises. Yeah, I mean, nothing happens in three days, you know, that's too, it's too short. <laughs> and so, so after that, so that was, you know, like what, what else? I know you were at Microsoft for a long time, yeah. a handful of other, you know, real deep enterprise companies. Like, tell, tell us about those experiences. So I guess before, you know, as it turns out at Texaco, I met this guy who was a founder and, you know, we didn't have the term startup at the time or things like that or founding an engineer, but he basically said, Hey, instead of going back to Israel, why don't you join me and we'll do a startup together? Hmm. And so I said, hmm, that sounds kind of interesting. Let's go do that. And as it turns out, I met him in the Texaco building. His quid pro quo was they gave him office space and mainframe time and all sorts of stuff like that. And in, you know, in exchange, he basically agreed to supply them a perpetual free license of whatever was going to come out of Neon Systems. And it was pretty interesting because I was mostly interested in the engineering at the time. Uh, but I learned from him, you know, how it is that you go talk to enterprises and understand what their pain points are and what their requirements are. And we knew that we wanted to create something that was basically kind of the bridge between like this new world of client server. You know, Microsoft was building like all these, uh, you know, new applications like Access and Visual Basic. And there's an ent entire industry that had these data hungry applications. But enterprises wanted to connect them to, you know, kind of their enterprise data sources. So, you know, mainframes, DB2s, IMS, and Unix systems like Oracle and Sybase and, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that was a pretty interesting formative experience because I was kind of employee number one. And we, uh, we went six years with that and we eventually took it public wow. uh, back in 1999. So that I call my rose color tour through uh, startupdom. But one of the things I learned through that was that we were at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. We were right at the, just the bleeding edge of this, you know, kind of like this disruptive wave uh, that was hitting enterprises. And, you know, all of them needed to, needed what we were building. 
And the disruptive wave was brought about by Microsoft's kind of new platform, this client server platform. And so, you know, like back, at, you know, in 1998, 1999, Microsoft called me up, I think it was 98. Yeah. And they said, uh, hey, we're building this new, you know, in this new platform, uh, what eventually became .NET, do you want to come join us? And that was like, I could not say no to that because it was so fascinating to see like this platform wave that floated a lot of boats, including ours, you know, back in the early and mid nineties and Microsoft was about to do the same thing. And so I was one of the first 10 people uh, that, you know, got to work on .NET. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I mean, so to talk about .NET, like what made it so interesting and new, like for the uninitiated, like what's special about it? But what was unique at the time? Sure. Like at the time, basically Microsoft had, it was kind of like the number one, two and three software vendor, but it was pretty clear that the cracks were showing. Like Sun had started out Java around 1996 and, you know, the browser was uh, becoming the platform and Microsoft was trying to figure out how to fit in the, into this new world. And so it was very clear that software architecture was changing. You know, you basically need to invest a lot more in how to build web applications. Microsoft was pretty good at, you know, kind of like designing systems that enterprise developers could use, like Visual Basic or Access, you know, where you would basically have kind of like a, an interesting, like today we call it low-code environments, uh, an interesting environment that was kind of like restricted in some ways, you know, it wasn't like you couldn't do everything and anything. You didn't under, need to understand what the Windows message loop was. Uh, but at the same time, you could actually build, you know, interesting and powerful applications if you had this opinionated framework. And, you know, at the time, we also were trying to grow up market, right? So we were considered the, you know, like the client side company, you know, operating system, what have you. And, and T was trying to, you know, kind of get its bona fides in, in the enterprise. And I recall like first joining and, um, you know, I really needed at Microsoft, it was very easy as a, you know, somebody who was in engineering and product to like not talk to customers at all. But one of the things I used to do is every summer I'd go fly out to Wall Street and meet with a bunch of banks over there. And it was just really humbling because they're like, oh, Microsoft. Yeah, you guys make mice, right? Like, you guys don't make enterprise software. Mm. We're like, oh, we made this thing called SQL Server. And they're like, toy. (laughs) And you're trying to figure out what they were looking for. And, you know, it just ended up being, you know, there's a combination of reputation and, you know, feature set and, you know, kind of like basically meeting them where they were. So a lot of them were like, look, we would take you more seriously if you built tools for Java. Or we would take you more seriously if you ran your database on Solaris, you know, or, you know, kind of the operating systems that we have. And it was a really interesting, you know, kind of set of decisions we had to make because on the one hand, we knew that nobody loved us on Java and nobody loved us on Unix. And on the other hand, we had to kind of figure out how to meet our customers where they they were. And so really .NET was about creating something that could be an alternative to Java but we knew that we could never grow it on the middle tier, you know, like as a as a middle tier application server type of framework. And we couldn't really win the database unless we, you know, kind of took steps to interoperate with uh, kind of like the world of IBM and BEA and Sun and Oracle and all those things. And so we basically had to change the game 
And one of the things that we realized could happen is there's this new kind of like this, the web protocols were going to become a lot more important than all these binary, you know, kind of like point to point protocols that like the Unix world and the Java world had. And so we basically started out by, you know, kind of creating this web services, you know, consortium. And we had our competitors there, IBM and BEA and Oracle and Sun. We all tried to kind of build software that interoperated. And for us, it was a way to level the playing field. When a enterprise came in and said, hey, are you Java compliant? We're like, no, 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 that's not the right question to ask. The right question to ask is, do we support SOAP or WSDL or UDDI or some of these early attempts at like web interoperability? Interesting. I mean, so this is like a, it's a very different world than we live today, where I think most people think about Microsoft, you know, and the success that they've had in the enterprise and, you know, Almost as if they are. You know, clearly, there's a there's a consumer side to Microsoft and a small business side to Microsoft, but the, the enterprise side seems incredibly successful. So, you know, this is a time period when Microsoft didn't have that credibility. That's exactly right, and we knew at some level that this is was a game of patience, mm. right? So we had a few people that had come from the enterprise. Uh, we had the person who ended up running the SQL Server division came from basically a, a healthcare company. And he could tell us as a customer what you know we needed and uh, you know what we needed to do in order to be enterprise credible. And it for a company that was so engineering centric, it was really hard to to hear. But ultimately kind of the desire to win, you know, overcomes your biases and your uh, almost chauvinism, right? And so we ended up, you know, kind of like eating some humble pie and realizing what we needed to do in order to get more, more credibility in the enterprise. So some of the things, you know, some of the is like features, right? Like uh, SQL Server didn't have, I think it was uh, row level locking, you know, and then when we delivered that in SQL Server 7, all of a sudden, you know, like SAP said, okay, now we can actually go build our software to finally run against your database. And so mm. figuring out what the unlocks were, like whether they were features or whether they were, you know, kind of support contracts, like for example, you know, people wanted, you know, support like for 10 years and our speed of innovation was much faster than that, but we had to kind of learn how to, you know, extend our support cycles and offer extended support for a lot of money uh, in order to actually match the enterprise requirements. Yeah, and, and this is like a, you know, you, you mentioned something which is like SAP being like, okay, now we can have our ERP talk to to your database as the as the backend, which is I think a, a pretty foreign concept to many people today, right? Like you don't have applications that are like, oh, you know, we can run on Oracle or run on, you know, I mean, I guess SAP eventually built Hana for some of their tools to run on or run on. You know, SQL Server or, or Microsoft SQL. Like, why, like, I mean, do you have context? It's like why that was the case. Like, you know, is it because you had a special DBA? Is it because there was a a shared system? Like, why why were people running applications that way? Oh, fantastic question! Because it's actually one of the, you know, one of the patterns that I think you know led me and Gert to start Asserto, and you know, we'll get there eventually. But uh, back in the early nineties these business applications would basically 
bring their own database, right? Like you would basically embed something like Oracle or DB2 or uh, maybe SQL Server, and you'd bring it along with you and you would pay a royalty to the database vendor. And towards the late 90s and definitely early 2000s, the whole buying motion changed, right? So there was, uh, you know, enterprises basically said, we have a site license, an ELA, for um, DB2 Enterprise Edition or for Oracle Enterprise Edition. And typically the larger the enterprise, they'd have two or three of these. And they'd have these like, you know, heads of architecture that would decide, you know, what it is that they supported and what it is that they didn't support. And to your point, it was exactly that expertise, the expertise of, you know, DBAs, system administrators. They wanted to make sure that they had you know, a, a smaller, like a constrained number of enterprise-ready infrastructure that they could support. And so basically the burden became, you know, sh- shifted to uh, the application provider to run on top of that infrastructure. So, you know, if you supported Windows NT and supported, you know, these, you know, Unixes or this Linux, uh, the application provider had to actually go meet those requirements. Now, on the one hand, it made it a little bit easier because you didn't have to pay a royalty, you know, and, and, you know, to bring something embedded. But on the other hand, it required basically interoperability standards to get built. And I use that term in a very loose way, right? So for example, you know, POSIX was a, a great interoperability mechanism because back at Neon, when we were asked to go port our software to a bunch of different Unixes, you know, DEC Unix and, you know, Siemens Nixdorf, you know, in Germany had like these Unix systems. They all kind of supported more or less the same system call APIs. And some of them even had application binary interfaces. And in the database world, it was ODBC. ODBC was the thing that basically flattened that whole space. Hmm. So before ODBC, every one of these databases had their own call level interface. And so we had this N times M problem, right? Like you had N applications trying to talk to N different databases. And it was like the Cartesian product of all of those in order to get the interoperability going. And what ODBC did and later on JDBC and some of these other things was to make that an N plus M problem, right? Like, so if the applications could write to a single API, and all of the database vendors had drivers for that API, all of a sudden you're making this problem a lot more tractable. And so, you know, one of the patterns that we see here is for you to actually, for for that platform shift to happen, there has to be some interoperability mechanism that that enables that. Mm, Okay. And did someone write the spec for what an ODBC... Uh Did someone write the spec for that? Like, how did that kind of standard become available? Yeah. So Microsoft basically wrote a book on it, like, you know, wrote the, the, the spec, the API. And then they were really good at running these DevCons uh, early on. And so they had, their strength was the ISV ecosystem that they brought uh, from Windows. Right. And they had to evangelize it. They had to have a critical mass of database vendors that were willing to play ball and companies like Neon, we basically built our entire business connecting, you know, all these data hungry applications with these enterprise data sources by building, you know, to this ODBC spec and making it like building all these enterprise features around it. 
So, you know, that was basically how Microsoft bootstrapped that. And once you get to a critical mass or a tipping point, then that becomes the standard. And Sun basically copied that. They basically said, okay, well, we need one of these for Java and we're going to make it pure Java. And so they were able to parlay some of that initial work and even use kind of like the same, like letters, the same, you know, kind of acronym. And, you know, to essentially bring that same capability to the Java ecosystem. And that was a JDBC. Exactly. Got it. Okay. And so did it mirror some of the patterns and was it sort of like a similar inspired spec? It, it was. I mean, I think more in name than anything else. They try to bring the Java kind of sensibilities, the patterns, mm. the opinionated you know, way of designing APIs to the Java world. But the pattern, like the at a 50,000 foot level, the pattern was so, you know, kind of recognizable that it was relatively straightforward for all these companies that built ODBC drivers to then build JDBC drivers. Mm. And so, you know, kind of the next, like that was, you know, you know, your move, son, right? Like they actually, you know, kind of were able to parlay, you know, the work that Microsoft did into their own ecosystem. And Microsoft had to respond by saying, okay, we're going to change the game yet again and make it not about Java, but we're going to make it about open standards on the web. And the early versions of those were like of, you know, SOAP and WSDL and UDDI and then WSTAR. Like, you know, some of them failed miserably. And, you know, I have the maybe the distinction of being the, the manager of all of those things at Microsoft. But eventually we got the rest, you know, and we got to things like OpenID Connect and we got to things like, you know, JWT and SAML and things that, you know, and OAuth 2, things that to this day are kind of like how the web does security and identity, for example. Yeah, but along the way you had to do some XML, right? Oh, yes. Lots and lots of XML. Oh, yeah. I. It's funny because one of the, I think it was one of the SVPs of Microsoft kind of looks at me and a few of the other people. I ran the XML team at Microsoft and right. he looks at me and he goes, we're all going to hell for what you've done to this industry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the crazy part is, right? Like you introduce like a new interesting pattern, a way to, you know, kind of like orchestrate, organize data that's machine readable it's not perfect the first time, right? Like the reality is a lot of these things aren't perfect the first time. And, you know, you, but it's like, it's good enough that it worked and it still is powering many of these things, right? And so, you know, I think what's interesting is the idea like, hey, eventually we, we revisit it and we redo it in a, in a way that's a little more efficient and a little different and, you know, take some of the lessons that we learned, but we wouldn't have learned those lessons had it not existed in the first place. Exactly. I mean, it's a great lesson around iteration. And at Microsoft, if anything, I would say our iteration speed or learning speed was way too long. We were kind of bitten by the bug of trying to make it perfect. And, you know, as we all know, perfect is the enemy of good enough sometimes. So, you know, that's, uh, that's one thing that, you know, I would say in retrospect, we spent so much time trying to get these things right that we got them wrong because, we forgot to go work with uh, folks like Google and eBay and Amazon and Yahoo, who were all kind of building, who were all consumers of the te- this technology, whether they were building on top of Linux or you know their own custom systems or Java or .NET. In the meantime, they were like, ah, oh, this stuff is way too complicated. We're just going to try to go do some of our own things. And they started talking to each other. And all of a sudden, we realized 
the power in this industry is no longer with the platform vendors. Mm. The power in this industry has shifted to these companies that are building mass scale internet services. That was like an enormous lesson. That's actually one of the things that ended up leading to Azure. Interesting. I mean, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So in, I think it was 2005, 2006, we kind of realized that there were early signs. Like, you know, one of the things I used to talk about was, okay, so we built this platform. Now what? Like, you know, let's start building some patterns on top. And so I proposed this service to Bob Muglia, who was running, uh, was the president of the server and tools business at the time, uh, which became the Azure team, right? And I said, uh, how about we create these storage bricks, you know, and like basically have these REST or, you know, SOAP APIs for being able to like, you know, kind of push and pull data out of, you know, kind of like our, our big hard drives because MSN, you know, and Bing and Live and all these services, they have these like enormous data centers. And he's like, that's the stupidest effing thing I've ever heard. You know, like he was like, do you know how, how much it costs to actually move a gigabyte of data, you know, over the internet? Like it's faster to actually put it on a DVD and send it like FedEx. Uh, it's faster and cheaper. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. yeah, but, you know, like project a few years out. And of course, you know, by the next year, uh, Amazon had S3 out and right. it was pretty clear that it was doing EC2. And so we were, you know, I would say we woke up around 2006, 2007 to this. And so we started building a team, you know, putting a team together. And some of the things were obvious, like you had to build a hypervisor, you had to build a, you know, kind of a storage system, you had to build the moral equivalent of EC2. But I was really interested in how it was that you bridged between the world of the enterprise and the world of what we now call the cloud, right? Because it felt like we had one foot in each camp, right? We had all these high scale, mass scale services, you know, on the, you know, kind of like MSN live side. And then we had increasing know-how in the enterprise. And so what we set out to do was build stuff like, you know, that could like bring together the world of on-premises and the world of the cloud. And the first service was what we called the Azure Access Control Service. And famous last words, this is part of the inspiration that led to Asserto. Uh, but we had services like, for example, the service bus, where like connectivity between on-premise and off-premise was really hard. So you had to kind of figure out ways to relay the traffic, and that was actually very valuable. So how do you actually have, you know, kind of like some, you know, code running in the cloud that could go talk to an enterprise system kind of behind the firewall, so to speak, and be able to get data out of an enterprise system. That was the service bus. Sure. And then, you know, the access control service was what became the Azure Active Directory. Okay, so I mean, the service bus, was it a product that you sold or was it like a part of the overall platform still? Like, how did you think about introducing some of this functionality? Yeah, so like Microsoft's really good at packaging, right? Yeah. So one of the things that Microsoft did, you know, historically, you know, very infamously was it said, you know, oh yeah, we have this thing Word, we have this thing Excel, we have this thing Access, we, and each one of them competes with a different uh, product. What we're going to do is we're going to sell Office. And, you know, Office is going to be at basically the price of one of these products, mm. but we're going to sell you all four. And we have a suite. And the very first, uh, you know, version of Office literally had no integration between these products. It had none. Mm. It was like, actually, it was a box. 
like back when we used to buy software in boxes, sure, sure, had yeah. Word and then a coupon for Excel and a coupon for Access. It was like that bad, right? But the, the business model was, was very sound. And so Microsoft knew that we had to go package all this stuff up. On the one hand, we needed to have consumption-based pricing and licensing for each one of these services, which we experimented with. And on the other hand, we kind of knew that we had to go you know, kind of like be able to package them up as uh, an offer together. And, you know, from 2008, when we first launched the first version of Azure up until now, I mean, it's come an enormous way. Like at first we were just stumbling in the dark, you know, not even knowing who our customer was. We first got, you know, kind of like confused and we said, okay, we want to compete with Amazon and go after the startups. And then we started talking to startups and they're like, why on earth would I use your thing? My VC tells me that if I use anything for Microsoft, they will not fund my next round. Like, you know, it's as simple as that. Like, I don't care if it's free. <laughs> I, I will never use your thing. And so we realized, okay, well, that's probably not the audience. There's, you know, over time, we want to kind of build better signal value for Microsoft in that community. But we have to kind of uh, find other people who are a lot more amenable to, you know, what we have to, 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 to offer here. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I still have the experience of like trying to sign up for like, you know, an Azure account and realizing I have to like create a Microsoft account. And I'm like, well, I don't really want another email address. I'm like, I just want to sign in with like my granitereplicated.com email address, not like create a on Microsoft.com account in order to access it. And it's like, a, I'm like, it's just funny to me that they still to this day seem to want to control the identity layer. But by doing so, they end up like, with their emails going to some email address that I'll never check, right? It's like this sort of a, an interesting, yeah, anyway, it's sort of an interesting side there. So the Azure piece here, realizing that your customers were not the startups, but were actually enterprises that had, you know, and users that were deep into the Microsoft ecosystem, you know, and then embracing that, I guess. Exactly. So, if you, you know, back to Bob, who is, by the way, um, in full disclosure, an investor in Asserto as well. Um, he was the he was the CEO of Snowflake before they ended up going public. But he basically said, you know, we have this thing we, we used to call them workloads, right, at Microsoft. Like, so we had the app server workload, which I ran. You know, we had the database workload, we had the file and print workload, and then we had the identity and access workload. And he always used to say, this is the linchpin workload for Windows Server. Why? Because every server application needs to know who is logged in and what they can do. Mm. And they get that information out of Active Directory. And Active Directory had like upwards of 90%, probably 95% market share of the identity and access workload. And it also spoke LDAP, uh, which was the other main protocol. And so, you know, kind of like the, the thought experiment was, what does identity and access look like in the age of SaaS and cloud? Like, you know, you had all these kind of early versions of SaaS applications, enterprise B2B SaaS applications, like, you know, like, like uh, Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce and Workday and, sure. and ServiceNow and all these folks. And they had to go build login on their own. There was no operating system to ask who was logged in. Right. And they also needed to go invent their own um, access control mechanisms. And so, we for, like the irony is we, we thought about access control as being kind of like the really important problem and we started building that. And then at some point we heard from people that like we don't even know how to log in. So we're like, okay, well, we got to solve that <laughs> first. Login is actually kind of like comes before. 
So we set out to go build, you know, what eventually became like, I call it the interoperable identity fabric. So, you know, you have things like OAuth2, you know, protocols like OAuth2 that allow you to, you know, now use an identity provider that you don't, you're not necessarily running, right? So Google can be an identity provider, Facebook can be an identity provider, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, um, and so on and so forth. And, you know, that saves you from having to, like, that's the N times M problem again, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like 10 years ago, you had, you know, Auth0 and Okta and none of these companies existed, right? But they saw this opportunity to, you know, kind of leverage some of these emerging standards and build enterprise single sign-on. So no one has to go build this thing that doesn't want to anymore, right? Like you now have developer APIs uh, for developers and you have enterprise systems, you know, like for enterprises that make it simple to solve the enterprise single sign-on problem. And access control is a problem that, you know, like we still have to this day, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that, I'm sure a little bit later on, but that was kind of what we set out to do with Azure Active Directory. And we obviously tackled the identity part first, but knowing that we were very strong on Active Directory and we we're trying to figure out how to parlay that into some a service that would be essential uh, in the new cloud. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I do want to, we, we will return here because I think let's just hit a couple of these other experiences, you know, the yeah. stuff you did at HPE and Puppet, and then let's mm-hmm. dive into, you know, what you're doing now at Asserto. And if you want to mention any, I know you kind of like had some other startups and things that you did along the way and, you know, some other roles, but, you know, the, those two seem to be the most kind of like pronounced in your, in your career recently. Yeah. Yeah. I left Microsoft in 2011 because I was frustrated that we didn't get open source. You know, I was, mm-hmm. I'd always been in dev tech and Microsoft absolutely got, you know, kind of Intel, you know, and IBM and this kind of like basically the standard hardware. And then it was a little late, but it got the internet. It like basically built, turned the whole company around in 1996 and said, this thing is going to be the thing. Right. And in 2001, 2002 is no longer kind of as involved and I remember at the time, Microsoft was super confused about open source. Um, it said, there's a cancer, this is going to kill the rest of the industry. And even at, at the time at Microsoft, you'd ask questions like, uh, so, you know, we have this web server called IAS, and um, there's this thing called Apache, and we don't really have any differentiation. In fact, we're a little behind it right now with its latest architecture. We can invest 50 people over the next year to go close those gaps, or we could just adopt that thing, you know, because it's kind of commodity now. And people would look at us like we were like from Mars and they'd mm-hmm. say, Oh, you're in, you're in the F windows business. I got it. <laughs> and you'd be like, what? <laughs> I mean, like, no, we have to own the whole stack, right? So when you're Microsoft and you're just such a successful company and you've gotten away for so long with building everything, you know, it's simple to assume that you can continue to build everything and that's kind of the right strategy. And I think by 2011, you know, things were starting to thaw out, but I was ready to actually go try my own thing. Uh, I wanted to go back to startup land, build a consumer startup, uh, you know, like ran into the ground after a year. Um, the biggest lear- learning there was that I'm not a consumer guy. I'm a B2B guy. And so I ended up uh, being in the, um, in the startup ecosystem. 
it's so appealing though, right? The whole the whole consumer world, you're like, I got this idea, I know how to build shit, I'll get this thing done, no big deal. People will love it. And then you're like, why doesn't this work? So, you know, just a 30 second aside, when I first started uh, back at Neon, uh, this was in 1992, I asked uh, Peter why he got to what he was building. And he said, look, two kinds of startups you can do. You can do a consumer startup or a B2B startup. Uh, we didn't use those terms, but that's what he meant. Yeah. And he said, there are only 10 companies that actually build software that is sold to consumers. Microsoft's one of them. And, you know, I think Quicken was another one uh, or Intuit or what have you. There were a very small number. And he's like, it's just basically, it's a, it's a, it's a very short head and a very long tail of startup carcasses. Sure. By contrast, you know, like there are a lot more viable businesses that can sell to, to, you know, sell B2B. And I remember when I first started Build Steady, all my advisors were like, what are you doing? Like you have all this knowledge and like, you know, platforms and cloud and all that stuff. Why don't you just leverage that? But I had a consumer itch to, to scratch. So I had to go do that. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to go try something, right? You got to go off and see if you can do it and you, you're like consumed by an idea. So you might as well. I get it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I ended up finding myself after kind of like being in the startup ecosystem for a little bit in the early 2010s, HP called and said, hey, we're starting this cloud division. Well, we have one, but we're now starting to get serious about it. And I said, HP, like, are you guys still around as a vendor? <laughs> They're like, yeah, 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 all the jokes. Uh, but Meg really wants to go build this cloud thing. And she's looking for people who are really good at it that could be, you know, available. And I had a few friends that had already ended up there. So I ended up joining to run engineering for uh, the cloud division in, in Seattle. And the thing that really brought me there was open source. Mm. So by the time, like when I left Microsoft, I was obviously building with open source. But this was an opportunity to actually kind of get a better sense of how open source was built. Uh, we wanted to become part of that ecosystem, uh, what was OpenStack at the time. And then uh, this was a little before the Cloud Foundry Foundation was formed. But, you know, I wanted to steer us towards an open source path for application, you know, kind of our PaaS strategy as well. And here was a company that didn't have any of the bugs that Microsoft had. Um, they were not confused about who they were. They realized that they were primarily a hardware company and that they had been you know, kind of like uh, <laughs> the distribution channel for Microsoft and for Red Hat and for, you know, all these other vendors that sold operating systems. And they kind of decided that, you know, they were going to try to get in the game by using open source uh, and becoming part of a, an open source community and contributing back, which was very attractive because that was learning I didn't have, obviously, in Microsoft. And so talk a bit about the OpenStack community just in general. I think it's really fascinating Sort of parallel, particularly because we've covered Kubernetes a lot on this podcast. So, yeah. you know, interesting to sort of hear your perspective around how you know the some of the lessons from OpenStack were applied into the Kubernetes ecosystem, and you know what what was learned there and what kind of went wrong. Yeah, so OpenStack kind of started out as this uh, you know experiment uh, between Rackspace and I think it was NASA. They basically said, hey, let's go create, um, Rackspace needed to go build something that looked like AWS. And they kind of were decided to go build something together. I think each of them contributed uh, one thing. And it's been a long time, but, you know, the yeah, compute project was called Nova. And then the, there was a storage project called Cinder. And, you know, there's 
And all of a sudden, like the open source ecosystem started coalescing around this. There were a bunch of MySQL uh, developers that were just coming off of like the Sun acquisition by Oracle, getting disillusioned. There were like just a few people that started getting really interested in what would like open source look like if we were trying to build a cloud control plane. And I would say that project ended up, uh, it was it was started out by practitioners, but enterprises ended up dominating it pretty quickly. So you had IBM move in, you had HP move in, you had Red Hat move in. And, you know, all of a sudden it became kind of like this, you know, like this political <laughs> system where on the one hand, the engineers were trying to kind of hold on and, uh, you know, keep control of the project. On the other hand, you had these large enterprises with a lot of interest in it. Was it the vendors or is it the sort of the... exactly? The vendors basically, you know, kind of took over a lot of the governance um, and there was still a technical advisory board. There's still, but there was also no, you know, kind of uh, guiding hand, so to speak. There's no center of gravity. So you had all these different projects and they had different leaders and it was kind of like this loose federation. You could think of it as the decentralized the, the you know, uh, model for open source. And that was in contrast to the, you know, the, the BDFL uh, kind sure. of model of the benevolent dictator for life kind of model. And they were pretty you know, explicit about saying, we're trying this out. Like, we don't know if it's going to work or not. And as it turned out, like, the project kind of fell over because it tried to expand too much, too fast. And these pieces didn't really relate to each other very well architecturally. And so when I think about Kubernetes, I think about like the center of gravity was always Kubernetes, right? Mm -hmm. Like the CNCF now is this sprawling thing, but there was this center of gravity, this anchor tenant that really, you know, provided like a lot of the design patterns. You yeah. know, if you look at something like Crossplane, for example, they borrow the Kubernetes API, CRDs, the Kubernetes machinery. Yeah. You know, so there are a lot of patterns to build on top of. Whereas I would say with OpenStack, there just wasn't enough of a core to try to build around. And so, you know, there was a lot of hype early on. You know, OpenStack was I think six, seven, eight thousand people conferences, you know, twice a year. Yeah, and there were a lot of uh, customers and users that tried to build on top of it, and got to like you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cores on the system. But ultimately, you know, I think that it just kind of crumbled, you know, under its own weight. Right. I mean, and I, you know, I think it's actually still has success in the world where it's running at all these telcos and powering all these data centers. It just didn't become the platform that like we write software for, right? It's sort of like could be under the hood, but no one really knows about it. And it's not really become a primitive that like, you know, is really enabling developers or application builders or SREs or anyone else to like, you know, build applications. It's sort of like maybe it's running some, you know, some infrastructure at large telcos around the globe. Exactly. And that was actually one of the decisions that we deferred for a long time and we eventually had to make, you know, as part of the OpenStack steering, you know, committee, there was always this kind of like dichotomy of, are we building stuff for, you know, smaller companies, for startups, or are we building stuff for larger enterprises? And given the fact that big vendors were involved, that were all selling to larger enterprises, uh, the larger enterprise agenda won. And as it turned out, the vertical that was most eager 
like that was basically needed its own transformation was the telco vertical. Right. They were all going from proprietary hardware, software systems. They wanted to all, all wanted to go to open systems. And so that was this use case that found the most purchase with OpenStack. And so more and more of the you know, communities' uh, efforts were diverted towards building these higher-end telco features, you know, like um, things that were like, you know, deep down in the Linux kernel, um, you know, kind of like architectures that will would allow real-time kernels to run, architectures that would allow kind of direct memory, you know, swaps instead of like a bunch of copying between kernel and user. There's just a lot of DBT, uh, what is it? DPDK, you know, was one of the things I remember, like one of the features that we're trying to deliver all sorts of integration with, you know, kind of networking things like open daylight. And there's just like, that was the agenda for the community because those were the customers and the customers basically lead you. Sure. Whereas I would say Kubernetes had not really succumbed to that like until much, much later. I think it was hell-bent on creating the what OpenStack wanted to become, right? Like the substrate that for the cloud. Right. And then after it was able to kind of create this, you know, the win win broadly, win at the breadth, it started moving up market. Yeah, and I think I mean there are some, you know probably a bunch of lessons you've seen, but like one that I think we've taken directly from the OpenStack community was around conformance testing, right? And so like every like to call it Kubernetes, it has to pass pretty extensive conformance testing, mm-hmm. and like so there's just not the variance between different you know providers that I think maybe you saw in the OpenStack community. Right. I mean, if you think about the APIs for OpenStack, they're all common, but every vendor of you know let's say you had a kind of some storage thing. That you wanted to go build, you know, a, a Cinder driver for. You'd go build it, and then you'd expose all your features. And so, kind of, this wasn't a right once run anywhere kind of thing. Like these yeah. were, you know, all basically thin shims on top of, you know, kind of like hardware that wanted to expose itself uh, to the world. Whereas I think a lot of the things that in the Kubernetes world, like Rook, for example, you know, that's a software solution. And there are kind of things that plug into it, but I think that there's a lot more commonality to your point um, so that you have a very consistent experience uh, no matter like what you're running it on top of. The other big learning I would say is that OpenStack had no adoption from the large cloud vendors, right? Like Mm. Microsoft wouldn't give it a time of day. Amazon certainly didn't. uh, Google didn't. And so you basically didn't have like... You know, you had no no pull from that. The largest vendors that did have OpenStack-based systems were the second tier, like HP and IBM and, and Rackspace. And that was just not enough nodes. That was just not enough public cloud infrastructure to make a difference. Whereas mm. I think with Kubernetes, you had Google as your anchor tenant, right? Yeah. And pretty quickly... You know, Microsoft saw an opportunity there. And then eventually, I think Amazon got there too. But, you know, when you have two out of the three large public hyperscale public cloud vendors, you know, that are on that architecture, you've already crossed the tipping point, I think. Yeah. And then, okay, so let's, let's, you know, kind of briefly go into your time at Puppet and then let's talk about Asserto. Yeah. So Puppet was, uh, you know, a lot of fun because it was kind of right in the middle. I'd done startups, I'd done large companies. Uh, Puppet was 500 people. And, you know, on the one hand, it had good, a good brand with DevOps. On the other hand, it was pretty clear that its value proposition was getting, you know, like disrupted 
with containers and with the cloud. And when I first got there, you know, like the, the what if or the kinds of questions that I was asking was like, do we want to be puppet for the cloud? You know, and people were like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, when I look around, I see things like uh, Terraform kind of being puppet for the cloud. That's what Mitchell tell you. Like he set out to build puppet for the cloud. And it was kind of a hard transition because I think puppet at that point was so focused on its customers, uh, specifically, you know, folks that were, you know, large companies that were standing up lots of infrastructure, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of nodes, uh, it was very focused on its knitting, which was try to make it as simple as possible to manage configuration, you know, on all these systems. The virtual, the physical to virtual machine transition was super simple. You know, that was, that was really easy. The move to containerization and to microservices was much more of a head scratcher. And so we spent time, I basically, like when I first arrived there, you know, 100% of the engineering and product effort were focused on the, you know, kind of the, the software that we had. And, you know, part of the process there was to start, you know, kind of transitioning more and more and more of our innovation, you know, of our engineering and product effort to working on this new world. And some of it was just even experiencing the new world, like, you know, starting to, you know, dockerize our stuff, starting to run our stuff in Kubernetes. Sure. At some point, we started working with you guys that had replicated uh, to take some of our, you know, software and, you know, kind of make it, you know, be able to transition it, you know, like run it, you know, in different places. Modernize it, running Kubernetes in customer environments. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, that was a, you know, I would say like I underestimated kind of how much of a transformation that would need to be. Uh, but one of the biggest things I learned there was about really writing a product uh, that has its uh, had its own open source ecosystem. There were kind of like three models, you know, there's like obviously the closed model and then there was like this open source model, but you were a single vendor. And then there was like this multi-vendor open source ecosystem model. So we tried the, that latter, you know, with OpenStack and later on Kubernetes and Docker was a little bit like that. And Puppet and Chef were more of the single vendor uh, ecosystem. HashiCorp, many, yeah. Exactly. HashiCorp is a great example of one that is as well. And I wouldn't say that one is better than the other because I used to say, well, multi-vendor open source ecosystems tend to win out over closed, you know, or, or over, over single vendor ones. But that's not obvious, right? Like I think HashiCorp is one in some where they had a clear, you know, value proposition that no one else was doing. Like I think Terraform is a great example of that. And, you know, in other places, I think the multi-vendor approach uh, got to scale faster. And, um, you know, I would say that, you know, like there's still people that use Nomad and love it, but Kubernetes is definitely the thing that won that generation. Sure. So with Puppet, you know, some of it was about like, how do you actually look at the new world? And some of it was, what do people actually pay us money for? So the conventional wisdom was, you know, people want an enterprise product and enterprise support. Well, what does that mean exactly? Uh, and so you start digging in a little bit and some customers will tell you, well, I don't pay you for all of the, you know, agents that I run on my Linux nodes, even though those are 99% or between Linux and Windows, 99% of my infrastructure is that. I pay you for the 1% that run on Solaris or AIX or Z systems. I, I don't even have Z systems anymore, but just the fact that you have that available mm. makes me feel like you have the breadth to be able to support me. 
because I'm a snowflake and I have snowflakey types of requirements. And so, you know, like you may have like less than 1% of your overall node count may be on a particular platform, but your most, you know, kind of loyal customers are valuing you for that. So that's a pretty interesting product. Yeah. You know, that that's a that's a, a trade-off. Like, do you actually support a long tail, even though you know that there are hardly any people who use it? But on the on the flip side, it gives you that credibility uh, with those enterprises. Yeah, and it's sort of the it's almost like scarcity creates value to some extent as well because it's kind of like, well, this is the only way that I know how to do this, and the fact that you continue to do this means that like you know you are you just there's no competition there. But I want to have standard tooling, and so like it's kind of like I need I need you to continue to do that in order for me to continue to use the tool. Makes sense. I mean, you know, and and especially when you think about. Let's talk about like the idea that like enterprises like add new technologies on, but they don't necessarily drop like old technologies at the same rate. And so it's like kind of an expanding pool. They do drop some occasionally, but like I think it's more there's more adding than there is subtracting. It's kind of like laws in the same sense, right? There's a lot more laws that are added to the books every year than are taken off. And so you need tools that continue to manage all of that. And you know, the a lot of what enterprise software does is help end customers manage the complexity of years of of sort of legacy tooling or you know old you know operating systems old like apps old you know systems just like because that's what you need to do you need to manage a lot of complexity exactly and that is ultimately you know enterprises pay you for manageability they live in just a sea of technology to your point and the level of complexity of trying to manage that you know, kind of heterogeneous environment is staggering. And that's why that's what they spend, you know, a huge chunk of their IT budget trying to do. And so anything that helps them make that morass more manageable, I think is very attractive to them. You know, one of the things that, like speaking of our back, you know, that's one of the most obvious things that people you know, kind of paid for when uh, when it came to Puppet, right? So Puppet was a great single, you know, workstation tool. And as soon as you try to make it work for teams, you know, so like scale up both in terms of the number of nodes as well as the number of people involved, that was where I would say the interesting monetization opportunities were. And, you know, Puppet didn't really get its open source strategy right at all. You know, if you had have Luke on your show, uh, you know, Luke Knees, the the founder of Puppet, he'll he'll be the first to tell you that. I mean, it's it's hard because they were one of the first vendors out there doing it well. And there wasn't necessarily, you know, GitLab and I mean even Puppet today, like, you know, many of these other companies that have that have figured it out better today. It's like it's just what the model wasn't as clear. Like the commercial open source model it was like everyone pointed at Red Hat and that was about it. But if there's more ways to do it. Yeah, exactly. And Luke would say, you know, back then the kind of what was emerging was this open core model, right, where, you know, it kind of made sense for databases, like so MongoDB, for example, had, you know, an open, uh, open core, and then they would build features around it. And for Puppet, you know, there was this interesting architecture where the tool gave you value running it on your own workstation, Puppet Apply, right. And it had the same exact interfaces, you know, like the same, basically the same DSL, uh, domain-specific language for authoring your, you know, all of your modules and things like that. But as soon as you started wanting to manage fleets of things, uh, you needed, you know, what was back then called a puppet master, you know. 
So that was also open source. Like basically Puppet decided to open source everything, the server, you know, and the client. Mm-hmm. And Luke would say that was, you know, a critical error because that brain, you know, that orchestrator was the thing that actually provided the scale for the system. Yeah. And enterprises tend to pay for scale. And so companies like Apple and Google had like literally hundreds of thousands of Puppet nodes running and weren't paying Puppet a cent because it like the open source software was good enough and some of the specific scaling points, you know, like things like RBAC and other things, they just kind of like built point solutions for. So one of the biggest learnings he had, and I've adopted that as well, is, you know, he calls it the open edge model, where everything at the edge is open source. Um, so anything that an application interacts with or a developer interacts with has to be open. You know, the engine is open. But the brain, the control plane, is something where you can actually add a lot of value and therefore, you know, build a, you know, a real value proposition that you can sell. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into Asserto. So one, let's, let's talk about, you know, the inspiration for it. You know, we talked, you know, years ago as you were thinking about it. And so, you know, excited to, to hear kind of how you, you, know, you tell the story today. And, and let's talk about what the product does. And let's talk more about RBAC too, because I think, you know, we're, what it means and what it is. So, but let's start with the founding story. Sure. So, you know, again, back to the, you know, 2007, you know, days where we were like, me and my co-founder were both working on what, became Azure Active Directory. And the idea was, you know, like try to re-envision, reimagine what what Active Directory would look like in the age of SaaS and cloud. And that meant identity and access. And when Gerd and I, you know, kind of popped our heads uh, up around summer of 2020, you know, we're like, okay, we're time to do something new, time to do a startup. We knew that we were both kind of in the intersection of developer and enterprise and cloud maybe. And we're asking ourselves, what's still hard to do? And we went back and looked at, you know, all the different things and access control was immediately something that we noticed, well, you know, there's an API for that, for everything, except for access control, right? And why is that true? You know, like, let's go back to, you know, our work at Microsoft and try to figure out why that's true and why why that could be something that we could go after. And, you know, we immediately kind of picked up on the fact that it was a much harder architectural problem than, let's say, standing up a service that does, you know, text messaging or payments or uh, email or even authentication. Most of those are one and done, right? Like they're not in the critical path of your application. You want a payment to go through, and when you get a 201 back from your, you know, REST call, you, you, you want to know that you're going to get paid, but your app is not waiting for that. Right. Um, whereas authorization, access control is in the critical path of every application request. So it has to run close to the application. And that's why the state of the art is libraries in a bunch of different languages. And it's, you know, every one of them is different. There are a bunch of different patterns. It's all a cacophony. You know, Node.js has its things and Golang has its things and, you know, like in uh, Python has its things. And it's just, there's no leverage, no reuse. You know, it's just all, a, you know, like a bunch of spaghetti code strewn across your, your application. So you really want a service, but you want it to have the operational characteristics of a library. You want it to be like 100% available to you, not 99.99% available, but 100% available. Because if the authorizer is not up, then your application's down, right? And you want it to be very, very fast. And so we realized it needed a hybrid architecture. And that was kind of a new thing. You know, you don't really see developer APIs that have that. 
very often, mm-hmm. where you have a component that runs right next to your application, and then you have you know basically a control plane that runs in the cloud. And if you look at the Kubernetes you know architecture, it kind of gives you words now to describe what that is. You know, we have a word called sidecar, you know, that basically is a container that runs in the same pod as you. And so like, there's a why now aspect to this where I think, you know, like architecturally, you know, the cloud native uh, world has evolved to the point where we can now talk about these hybrid architectures as something that you don't have to go reinvent a whole bunch of stuff. You could, you know, layer on top of existing patterns. And, you know, then we, of course, did the requisite, talked to 100 CTOs and VPs of engineering and asked them about problems they have and specifically about access control. And, you know, 98% of them basically came back and said, big problem. I have to build right now. It costs me a lot of money to build and maintain. It's not really core to what I do as a business, but I have to get it right if I want to go sell into larger customers. And so we'd start asking them, you know, so how often do you rebuild these things? And they're like, yeah, every year, year and a half, like I have to go, you know, go back to the well and put a team of three or four people on it. And they have to spend, they think it's going to take them two months, but it actually takes six months. And there's just like an enormous opportunity cost around that. So we definitely saw that pattern of developer API, you know, that um, there was room for. And, you know, at that point, it was a matter of, you know, can we build this? And so we started looking around and again, we're big believers in open source and open ecosystems. Uh, We found obviously OPA uh, in the CNCF that looked to be an interesting engine to try to build around and on top of the open policy agent, right? Open policy agent. Exactly. And so, you know, we didn't see a whole lot of other people doing it, but the ones that were, were kind of inventing their own languages and their own, you know, building their own engines. And we thought that that was actually going to be a distraction instead of doing that, you know, which we know how to do, but you know, it's, it's, it's undifferentiated heavy lifting from our perspective, go find a common engine and go solve the architecture problem. How to bring data to that engine in a way that's like, you know, like that engine can operate in, you know, hundreds of microseconds or maybe a very small number of milliseconds, you know, so it's operating on cache data and solve that synchronization problem. How do you bring data to that engine? How do you bring user information to that engine so that it has it cached locally? How do you bring resource data to that engine? Those seem to be the hardest problems. And so that's what we ended up uh, setting out to solve. So the position is it's actually the hardest part isn't like how to describe the policy. It's more like how do you actually implement this in a way that's hyper efficient and fast? Exactly. Because if you are, you know, like just a an enterprise that's walking up to OPA and saying, um, okay, I want to go build on top of this, all the hard problems are still there, right? Like you you certainly you have to learn a language uh, and you have to learn how to interact with uh, that particular component. And the, the language, you mean Rego, is that right? Rego, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, the hardest parts are really how do you build a distributed system that allows you to gather all this data that the authorization engine needs to make an authorization decision, as opposed to having the authorization engine go make a bunch of REST calls to a bunch of systems. And, you know, like those could be, you know, across the internet for all, for all you know. And that, those will give you a you know a very rough experience if uh, that authorization service is in the critical path of every application request. So you know 
I think there's a hard engineering problem here. Uh, and if you see the need, which is every single B2B application has to solve this problem. And the kind of cloud native technologies are just like by themselves, they're insufficient to, to be able to address it properly. You know, we saw a pretty big opportunity. Sure. I mean, not just every B2B application, but every application that's internal to enterprises, right? Like you're, you know, you're writing an internal tool or some, you know, some creating something like you need to have different roles that people can use and leverage in order to decide who has what permissions, right? So it's sort of based on that principle of least privilege, right? Is that kind of a security principle in a sense? Yes. Um, you know, we talk about this on the enterprise ready site, like it was always a core feature of enterprise readiness, right, for software companies is to, you know, have good role-based access control where you're identifying and saying, look, someone that signs up, I can assign them the role of, you know, a sales person. And that salesperson is going to have different permissions and access than someone with the role of, you know, a engineer and someone with the role of support. And so you have all these different roles and, you know, you could all, you think about it as even like groups, right? Like, you know, what's the language that you use or define? Because there's clearly like resources, which are the actual things that you're acting on. There's actors. Like, what what are the, the words that you use to describe these different sort of key components or players in, in role-based access control? Yeah, so we basically start, you know, kind of with the authorizer, right? The authorizer is a thing that uh, takes some inputs and produces an output. And the inputs are what we call the user context. So, you know, whether that's a machine or a particular user, mm. you kind of have to know in the context of who you're evaluating this authorization decision. There is the resource context, which is basically, you know, kind of like how fine grain you want to take it. So some people say, well, every, you know, kind of like resource in this project needs to be managed in the same way. Some people say, well, every document in this folder needs to have its own, you know, authorization. So you can take it as coarse grain or fine grain as you want. And then finally, there's what I would call the authorization policy, right? So um, the set of rules that allow the authorizer to reason about this user context and resource context and make decisions. And that's the output. The output is a decision. So typically the decision would be to allow or deny access to that particular resource. But you can basically build other types of decisions as well. So one of the patterns that we heard about early on was, well, you know, there's my API and I want to basically have uh, allow deny decisions uh, based on user context and resource context. But then I have like my UI, you know, I have a React app and I want to actually, you know, control whether I'm rendering like a set of controls, like a set of components or making them enabled or disabled based on the user context. And it's all spaghetti right now, right? Like there's no relationship between these. And one of the early realizations that we made was, we could define not just an allow decision, but also a visible decision and an mm. enable decision. And so have a single policy that drives not just API you know, authorization, but also some behavior on the client. And those are kind of some of the convergence points, I would say, that kind of make people start like kind of imagining what's possible. Interesting. And so in like what you know, where where's the product? Like how far along? What's the what's the status? Yeah, so we uh, launched a private beta back in June, and we had a set of folks that 
you know, work with us as design partners. And, you know, a few of those are now customers. So we uh, just uh, last month, we basically opened up our doors. So now we're in open beta. We have production level customers that are running on it. So beta is more, you know, the sense of, um, you know, our APIs are still evolving, you know, so we haven't kind of cut out, cut the 1.0, you know, on the APIs yet. You know, it's a little bit like uh, HashiCorp, who, you know, has had like zero point XYZ, you know, types of releases on things, because I think, uh, you know, Mitchell and Armin are, you know, like they think that 1.0 means something, right? And so we right, do yeah, too. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we're, you know, we're working with a, a fair number of really interesting customers at pretty large scale points, I would say, uh, to be able to, you know, kind of essentially build authorization into their SaaS solutions. Cool. And so, you know, who, and who's evaluating it? Is it a developer? Is it a product manager? Like who's sort of the, the, the you know, ideal customer? So typically it's a, um, I, uh, some combination of developers that are trying to figure out, you know, kind of like, I need to go solve this problem. It'll typically be a staff software engineer. Uh, and then, you know, oftentimes uh, it has to involve, uh, oftentimes always has to evolve like a head of engineering, a VP mm-hmm. of engineering or a CTO. And so, you know, that's kind of an interesting bottom up versus top down type of uh, dynamic there because you need to have a champion, right? You need to have someone who like recognizes that they want to, they want help on this problem. And oftentimes, you know, the three drivers are, it's going to be way more expensive for us to build it ourselves and, or it's going to take way more time for us to build it ourselves. But almost always includes, and these folks know a lot more about building a secure solution than we do. And so it's, it's been a very interesting journey because, you know, as we've gotten case studies, you know, like customer evidence, our customers basically tell us, well, um, you know, like it was, we did the evaluation and we decided that the ROI was 20 X <laughs> better to use your thing, which was like, well, oh, maybe we're leaving some money on the table. All, all, all good early products do so. Exactly, exactly. But even more importantly, I think it's, uh, well, you know, you guys think about the end to end, you think about like, you help us design what a good authorization model looks like, all the way to, you know, what the audit trails need to look like so that we can sell our stuff into enterprises. And I think that's a, that's a critical piece, right? Because, you know, every startup wants to grow up to be able to sell into larger and larger companies. Um, especially OSS startups, right? Like where, you know, if you look at Puppet, you know, we had, you know, 40,000 organizations using Puppet, about 1,100 of those were customers and probably, you know, the top 20 paid for 95% of you know, our salaries, right? So, you know, you have to have, you know, those, you know, larger companies that are betting the farm on you. And in order to do that, you have to meet like this pretty big Excel spreadsheet of requirements, and at the very top of those, you know, will be things like, um, you know, you need to be able to allow me to run it on-prem, <laughs> right? You know about that. <laughs> and, you know, right near that top, you know, maybe even, you know, neck and neck with that is you need to be able to, you know, kind of like work with my roles and permissions. You know, you need to have, a, you know, allow me to build custom roles. Every decision that your, you know, software makes has to be, you know, need to be like auditable and, you know, I need to be able to push that into my, you know, seam system, my Splunk or my Elk or whatever it is. Um, so there are 
pretty significant requirements. And when you start adding all those up, you start realizing this is not just like designing what viewer and, and editor and admin and those roles do. There's just like a whole set of machinery here that must be, must be there in order to be able to, to close that sale. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that it for sure is the whole thesis of, you know, the enterprise ready piece is like looking at those, you know, vendor security questionnaires and realizing like, Hey, there's a whole standard set of features that everyone needs to have. And that was the, that was the impetus. And, you know, I think it's, it's great to see services like Asserto out there now that help folks get there faster. Um, because, you know, like we're all building these sort of non-differentiating non, you know, like, features that are kind of table stakes, right? And everyone's reinventing the wheel every time. And there's actually big advantages if we can standardize on how to describe those policies because then you can leverage policies across, you know, different applications or you can centralize policy management on the enterprise side. There's a whole bunch of different reasons why, you know, standards are actually really important. And I like that you sort of, you know, focused on OPA and Rego from that perspective because I think like, you know, having those standard ways to describe these things is a really, is really foundational. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And going back to that N times M and transforming that into an N plus M problem, that really, I think, is why we're so excited about this space. Because yeah. if you think about the, the life of an IT administrator today, they live in dozens, if not hundreds of different console experiences. Every one of them exposes a different set of permissions, rolls them up into a different set of roles, has different processes for how to map between what you, the enterprise IT administrator, think of as a salesperson and what they call a salesperson. And, you know, so misconfigurations are rampant. You know, people leave and they still have entitlements. You know, it's a nightmare for the CISO. It's a nightmare for, you know, the IT department. It's terrible, right? And so enterprises have this big incentive to try to standardize, right? And if you think about like the conversation we had about databases, you know, like a little while ago, the same pattern's gonna end up emerging here, where in the same way that I as an enterprise wanted to standardize on a small number of enterprise databases, I as an enterprise now wanna, you know, standardize on my enterprise SSO and also my enterprise access control plane. Right. Like I want to be able to define like for all my users, you know, all these different types of, you know, roles or groups or what have you and be able to map them into all of these applications, both internal and external applications. Mm -hmm. Right. So and that you only get when you actually start getting to standardization. And standardization is not one is not something that one vendor does. Right. It's I would say a you know, it's a wave that floats a bunch of boats. And so we're, we're at the very, very infancy of that. And I think that we're going to obviously compete with a set of people that will want to go build things that are similar to what we're building. But just as critical is for us to figure out how to cooperate and build a broader ecosystem so that um, we can kind of bring about this convergence. Yeah, I mean, even if there are three or four competing standards in a sense, it's better that there's standards versus like 5,000 different bespoke ways of doing this, right? And so, you know, if you think about, I mean, this, this applies everywhere. It's like, you know, hey, look, it's better that there's some standards, even if there's a couple competing ones, that's better than none. And everything's just, you know, completely, you know, custom and bespoke and doesn't, doesn't re, not reusable. So not standardized. So, you know, even if it doesn't end up being consolidated completely or totally 
interoperable, like something towards a handful of interoperable uh, systems is better than, you know, completely bespoke ones. Exactly. I mean, a good example is you still see access tokens that are, you know, SAML. <laughs> and you also have, you know, JWT is, you know, most of the new, you know, new applications are using that. And it's fine to have to, you know, and it's just kind of like the tax we all pay, so to speak. But it would not work if there were like 2000, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, when you think about building a product like this, you know, what are what are things you're applying from your previous experiences? I mean, you've you've kind of been so deep in, you know, in Microsoft, HPE, Puppet, you know, uh, one, what like what lessons are you applying to make sure you don't make some similar mistakes? I guess is the first question. Yeah, so one thing I would say is uh, really kind of understand what problems your you know prospective customers really have i think that it's so easy to go and you know kind of build stuff and you know if you build it they will come but kind of really you know getting a lot deeper into what it is that is really problematic for them where it is that you need to be able to meet them where they are as opposed to have to like invent things that they have to go adopt and then where do you actually add value so for us like we had that you know early conversation around do we want to go build uh, an authorization engine and my co-founder Gert who's just a titan of technology you know he helped build the storage engine for SQL Server and you know built up like he was chief architect of Hulu and you know wrote the first lines of code on Azure Active Directory you know we had the team that we could go assemble to go build an engine but we realized that that wasn't the place where you know we were going to get the most bang for the buck. And instead, people were really asking to solve things that seemed much more pedestrian, but were actually much more practical. Like, well, all our users come from like Okta or Auth0 or Azure Active Directory. And so how do I actually get my you know user information into your system? We're like, ah, well, let's go build a directory. Let's go make, you know, kind of like connectors into all these things. Architecturally, let's make them plug-in points so that people can actually can you know build other ones you know we don't have to build them all let's go standardize on what a user looks like so that you know there's like again n times m to n plus m uh, and then let's go figure out like the protocols necessary to take you know all of that information that's collected by the control plane and push it down to you know the sidecar the open source authorizer that we have you know that's one you know one hard one lesson i would say and another one is really kind of uh, thinking deeply about where you want to be open, uh, where you want to be able to provide an open source solution, and where you think you actually add value. Where you know, even though some people are asking you, well, you know, if you open source this, I'd use this. You know, is that really the right thing for the business long term? And so we're very clear with people. We say the edge, you know, the open source, the authorizer is open source. It's built on top of OPA. We basically build a set of capabilities around it that make it much more valuable to you in the application authorization scenario. Uh, and you're free to use that, you know, in the same way that you're free to use Puppet on a single node. But if you want a control plane that kind of helps you manage all that complexity, you know, and solves hard problems like mutual authentication, mutual TLS between, you know, the clients and the servers, you know, having a, a satellite, what we call a satellite and edge authorizer become managed, you know, all the audit trails and centralizing all of those. Well, that's, that's what we've built in terms of value. And, 
you know, you can run that on-prem if you want, uh, but that's the thing that, you know, is not open source and that's the thing that we, uh, you pay us money for. Cool. That makes sense. You know, it also seems like you took some lessons around team building and sort of like how you put this together. So talk a bit about like, you know, how you think about growing the team and scaling out and, you know, going to market or the whole, you know, spectrum of, of sort of early company uh, activities. Yeah, I mean, zero to one is really hard. Um, and, and I would say in some ways, it doesn't matter how much experience you have, it's still pretty darn hard. <laughs> um, you know, the first thing that you need is a great partner. And so I found that with Gert, obviously. I mean, this is our fourth rodeo together. We're together at Microsoft, then at HP, then a Puppet, and now with Asserto. So, you know, we don't agree on everything, but we have a pretty good shorthand for how it is that, and a lot of trust in terms of how we resolve uh, conflict and issues. Um, you know, and I think the initial team, uh, knowing that we had something pretty, you know, like engineering intensive to go build, we knew that we needed to hire, uh, engineers and we were fortunate that we had a pretty good network, uh, and including a team that we had worked with, uh, in Romania of just phenomenal engineers that, uh, we acquired into HP and then, you know, I brought them on board at Puppet and now, you know, some of them have chosen to join us uh, as well. So this is, again, our third rodeo together. So having a team that has a fair amount of trust built is important. And at the same time, you kind of, you don't want everybody to think the same way. So you want to kind of build, you want to seek diversity, right? So, you know, the the notion of kind of going out of our first, you know, like in second order circles, uh, but really trying to attract other people that can bring different perspectives that's easier said than done, right? Like you have to kind of get your name out there and there's a little bit of a chicken and egg. We were fortunate that some people found us and some people got introduced to us that ended up being great fits. So the other thing I'd say is uh, we were born during the pandemic and you know any kind of old fashioned ideas about being co-located were like pretty obviously not you know going to carry uh, to the future. I recall being, you know, having developed a pretty strong sensibility around you kind of either want to be co-located or you want to be remote first. Yeah. It's there's not really any room in the middle because if you have half the team kind of like remote and then the other half of the team kind of hangs out by the, the the water cooler, it creates this kind of information asymmetry that's that's really difficult to overcome. And so we're a fully remote team. Uh, we do have obviously a set of people, uh, clusters, you know, a cluster in uh, Timisoara in Romania, a cluster in Seattle, you know, a couple of people in California, a couple of people in Indiana. But everything that we do, we do online. And so I think that has been important from a cultural perspective. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. You know, like it's funny, our, our VP of engineering and our CFO are both in Austin, you know, where I'm located, uh, and a handful of other folks are VP of marketing or VP of, uh, you know, but, but those two are my direct reports, and I I don't see them in person. You know, maybe more than I see anyone else on the executive team in person, because it's just like that's just the culture is like, hey, we only get together really in line because that's how we. Uh, and when we do get together in person, we're all going to do a little on site together somewhere. So, yep, yep, yeah. I'd say one one other lesson you know that I can think of is the the lesson of humility. You know, I would say earlier in my career, I thought I knew a lot more of the answers than I did. And, you know, as you, you know, kind of put more years, you know, into this business, you realize the only thing, you know, that's common is I don't know anything. <laughs> sure. And, 
you know, every situation is different and you kind of need to approach it from first principles. Some of your experience is going to be useful to bring the bear, you know, because you've seen some things that have worked and some things that have failed just because it failed before doesn't mean it won't work again and vice versa. So, you know, I think having that, you know, like the curiosity and the willingness to be able to fail and learn and fail again and eventually succeed, I think is just one of the critical attributes that we look for in people. Oftentimes when people come in and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've done this. I've, I know what phase you're in. I know how to do this and all that. It's a little bit of a turnoff because mm. um, I'd say this is the first time we're doing an authorization startup. <laughs> you know, like there's a bunch of things to learn. I did a startup back in 1992 to 1998. Doing a startup now is like, you know, like literally there's almost nothing in common <laughs> between uh, what we did then and what we're doing now. And so yeah. having that approaching every day with, uh, you know, humility and, you know, kind of the curiosity and wonder, I think is is really important. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's a core value for us as well. And I think to your point, like no one's ever built a company like this in 2022. This is uh, the first time that's ever happened. And so, you know, there's a bunch of new things and different considerations that you have to take into effect. And it's, you you have to think about everything is like, hey, we're going to try and experiment and try to, you know, leverage some of our experience to make good decisions. But like, hey, we can be wrong and we're wrong a lot and that's okay. We just try to make, like, be more correct faster. And the the idea of humility and curiosity really do pair well together because I think, you know, someone told me that they were like, yeah, well, it makes sense because only really curious people you know, have a have a sense of humility because they know the reason you're curious is because like you know you can't be right about everything. You know you don't have all the information. You know that you want to learn and there's room to learn. And so you know those two those two values really, really pair up well. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Amri, this is a great talk. You know, it's so much uh, interesting experience to dig into and thank you for sharing. Like, you know, there's I one of the you're like one of those people that I love talking to about like a prior generation of software. Because I just learned so much and I'm like, oh, that's, you know, because generally the, a lot of the reasons why things are they, the way they are today is because there is some precedent that was set, you know, prior. And so you can actually learn a lot about why things are the way they are today by just like trying to understand why they, how they got that way in the first place and what was happening before. And sometimes, you know, it was the right decision and sometimes it wasn't. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, always, always a pleasure to talk to you as well. You're such a great, you know, uh, conversation partner and, uh, you know, listener. And I love your perspective because the one of the things I've learned in my career is that, you know, never like, you know, kind of assume that because something happened in a particular way, it's going to happen the same way again. And so having, you know, like just breadth of perspective is just so valuable and I always find our you know our conversations a great give and take because I always learn so much uh, when we talk so I really appreciate it it's two ways so I love that thank you Amri awesome thank you so much that's all we have time for today if you're interested in being a guest on this show or if you'd like to suggest a topic or just to learn more about enterprise features find us at enterpriseready.io to learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.